Bibles with you, uh, open them please to the book of First Chronicles. I understand that um, I stand in a place where great men of God preach and have preached. My brother Kyle is a, is a dear brother, and uh, you've had the likes of Vody Bauckham and Jim Oreck and the Askell brothers, and I hear listings of others who are coming, and this week you just got to put up with me, so... <laughs> First um, Chronicles chapter 10, we're just going to read a couple of verses, starting at verse 13. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord, and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord, and therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day. We pray, Father, for your spirit to be upon us. We pray, Lord, for you to break open our hearts with the power of your word. Show us the places in our lives that we need to repent. Show us the places in our lives that need to be strengthened according to your truth. God, I pray that there be no one in this place this day that leave unchanged. I pray, God, that we are all confronted with the word, confronted with our sin, confronted with your glory and transformed by it as we should always be when we enter into your presence. I pray, God, for your unction to be upon me. I ask that nothing be spoken that is not your word and not your truth. And I pray, God, that you would set me aside. Let your spirit be heard, your voice be heard. Let Christ be honored. And in all that we do, God, help us give glory and majesty to the risen Christ, seeking always that he be exalted in hearts where he is now despised. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I typically preach expositionally, verse by verse. I've been working through Hebrews for the last four years or so. Um, I'm going to do something of a departure from that this morning. I'm going to do a character study on the life of Saul. And um, so I'm using this epitaph of Saul in 1 Chronicles 10 as a point of departure. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9, where we will pick up the story of Saul. But I want to just begin by addressing some statements at the start. The words about Saul may be some of the saddest in all of Scripture. The final end of Saul, the first king of Israel, is fitting for the tortured life that he led. As harsh as the judgment is, we still have much to learn about what God requires by examining this life. This is an age of doing your own thing and believing that the end justifies the means. And nowhere is that more dangerous than in the church. We're warned of God that we're not to do things in the manner of the heathens among whom we dwell and that his ways and his plans are far beyond us. But the church today often chooses man's methodology for its own expedience and for the seemingly good results with no regard for spiritual consequence. In a nutshell, this is Saul. Do whatever seems best at the time to accomplish what you want, never mind the cost. So I want to begin with just a really brief overview of Saul's life, and then we're going to go back and we're going to kind of pull up some of the places to emphasize some things that I think the Lord wants us to hear. So at the beginning of, of our encounter with Saul, we find that he is just this quiet shepherd guy, and um, Israel cries for a king, and God gave them Saul. He was chosen and crowned king. He was delivered, um, he was a, a mighty warrior and delivered Israel for a season, 
But what we learn and will learn is that he was not a man who loved God and he would not remain king. His son Jonathan would have made a good king, um, but he was rejected for the sake of his father. And Saul disobeyed God. Um, he refused to kill Agag and the kingdom was stripped from him. David is anointed king and bursts onto the national scene with his conflict with Goliath. David is then brought into Saul's house to drive away the evil spirits that God had sent to torment Saul. But Saul is insane with jealousy about David and seeks his life in a manner of ways. Several times he hurls a spear at him, attempting to pin him to the wall. He then decides David's too quick for him, and so he sends him into numerous dangerous battles as a leader, hoping that the Philistines would do his work for him. David survived. David gains more glory. Saul then offers him his daughter in marriage, and the bride price is the foreskins of a hundred Philistines, so he is to go kill a hundred men, um, and David triumphs and brings back two hundred. Um, he then tries to enlist his son to kill Saul. He then tries to enlist his servants to kill Saul. Finally, things become so heated that David flees the palace and is hunted by Saul for a couple of decades. At the beginning of that time, Jonathan and David swear friendship and loyalty. And at least twice during that time, Saul has David's life, I mean, David has Saul's life literally in his hand and refuses to slay him. In the end, though, Saul is finally slain after seeking counsel from Samuel's shade or ghost, whom he raised by a witch against all of God's law, and is killed in battle the very next day. Um, those are the low points, if you will, the, the, the bitter things, and there's much in the middle. But we have to begin with the idea that Israel itself was a nation in rebellion. Um, look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 7. I believe I said 9 earlier, but I was incorrect. 8 chapter 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, in the end, what happened was God had told his people that they didn't need a king like all the other nations. They didn't need a man to lead them. They had him. And if they would just follow him and do what he said and obey his words and walk in a way that was faithful to his commands, they would be the nation of nations among all of the nations of the earth. But Israel looked around and they saw all the other lands that had a king that led them into battle and said, oh my goodness, we want a man just like him. We want a king. We want somebody to follow. We want somebody who will stand in the front because frankly, God, it's really hard to follow after you because we can't see you. We can't touch you. We can't interact with you in a way that's convenient to us. We want to be just like them. And when they cried out for a king and God relented and told them that they would have one, they were also given a warning that this would not be good for them. So read it um, in 1 Samuel 8. We'll start at verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and he will appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, and the best of your young men. 
He will take your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flock, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's a fairly stern warning. That's a fairly dire statement from God. But in the end, Israel said, you know what? We'll take it on the chin. We'll do whatever it takes because what we want is to be accepted by them. And beloved, hear me. Hear me very carefully. This is the challenge that faces the church every single day. God tells us we're to do things in his way and not in our own. He tells us we are to do things in a way that honors his word, in a way that honors his truth, without giving any consideration to what the world thinks or what the world says we're supposed to be. And if you're not aware of the intensifying pressure of the, of the world upon the church right now to bend the knee to the ways of the world, you are either asleep or already dead. Because you cannot be ignorant of just how much pressure is being put on the leaders of the church, not only from the outside, but because of the pressure that's being put on the people in the church from the inside as well. Beloved, you have a man who will stand before you and lead you in the ways of the Lord. I know this man well enough to know that. And you have been blessed with a godly pastor who is willing to stand and to say, this is what God says. And that's what's needed more than anything else. You need somebody who will stand and speak the truth, who will declare the truth, and who's courageous enough to say it doesn't really matter if we've always done it this way, if we've never done it this way, or what the world says we're supposed to do. The only thing that matters is what says the Lord God. This is his word to us. And when we will not obey, we will face the consequences of that. So they decided that they were going to have a king to lead them so that they would be like all the other nations. Verse 20 of chapter 8 says this. No, I'm so sorry, verse 19. No, but there shall be a king over us, so that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So, did Israel desire the same things that God desired? What did God desire for Israel? That they would be his people. What did the people want? We want to be just like everybody else. What were the laws of God designed to do? Ultimately, they were designed to set Israel apart. There are so many strange things in the Old Testament Levitical law that serve no real purpose except to make them weird. And that's really all they do. I mean, you look at the, the, the statements about the clothing they were to wear and the, and the blue thread woven throughout and the tassels on the garments, the, the idea that they were not ever to wear any mixed fabrics. If that were the truth anymore, I think we would all be in trouble because you can't hardly buy anything that's not mixed. In the end, all of the restrictions that were placed, except for the ones that dealt exactly with righteousness, were primarily designed to set Israel apart so that they were different so that they were not like the other nations. God wanted them to be holy. He wanted them to be his people and not anybody else's. And he wanted them to be a testimony by the way that they lived their lives and by the way that they did things. But what Israel wanted was to be accepted by everybody else. What Israel wanted was to be just like the other nations. And they said to God, no, we will have a king. And we will have a king who will lead us just like everybody else. And what's really sad about that statement is that's exactly what they got. They got a king 
who would lead them just like all the other nations. Now, because God is merciful and God is gracious and God is good, he didn't treat with them in absolute anger and fury over their rebellion against him. In fact, if you'll read on just a little bit further, when uh, the coronation of Saul has already taken place, we'll skip forward to chapter 12 and look at verse 20. Samuel is speaking to Israel now, and they've, they've said, hey, are, are, are you going to leave us because you're mad? And Samuel says this, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. You see, God was determined to let Israel be his. He was determined that no matter what they did and no matter how far they ran away, they were still his. And that the glorious truth is that that's still true of us today. No matter how far we run, God knows those who are his own. And he will never lose any. You cannot run far enough to escape the hand of your God. You might rebel and you might suffer for it. You might be hurt. You might be scarred. You might be saddened, you might be afraid, you might be a whole host of things, but what you will never be is abandoned. God will not forsake those who are his own. And in the end, when you rebel, and I know us all well enough to know that we will, God still cries out for us to come back. And that's the mercy of his love. That's the mercy of his grace, because you weren't good enough in the first place for God to choose you. He didn't pick you because you had a good life. He didn't pick you because you did things right. He didn't pick you because you picked him. He didn't pick you for any reason, except it pleased him to pick you. And if, and if you really feel like you have to have a reason, then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and see how unflattering the list is. He didn't choose anybody wise, anybody noble, anybody of good report. In fact, he chose the weak, the powerless, the, the, the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things that are wise. So if you want a list for what qualifies you to be a Christian, weak, powerless, foolish. Okay. We'll just call it grace. <laughs> Save a little dignity. In the end, God promises that he will not forsake us. Because his love for us is not in any way based upon us. It's based upon him. It's based upon his determination to save a people. What does Samuel say right in the middle? For the sake of his great name. Beloved, that is the anchor that binds everything that we are. That is the anchor that cements us to our God. It is his determination to make much of his own glory. And it's a beautiful and a truthful and a glorious thing. So let's talk about this king of rebels, Saul. He was chosen because he had all the right qualifications. 
in the eyes of man. Back up to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2. And we'll find these incredible qualifications. Talking about Kish, who was uh, Saul's dad. Starting at verse 2, it says, He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all of the people. That's it. Fabio. <laughs> big hair, big shoulders. He was beautiful. Not like me. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a man to admire physically. But he was not a man to admire in his character. He was not a man who loved God. He was not a man who had any godly character whatsoever. In fact, after he encountered Samuel and, and was told he was going to be king, um, Samuel resolved an issue with his father's donkeys, which is why they were getting out from the, from the farm anyway. And Saul, in, a, in response to what Samuel did, Samuel told him that you're going to go and you're going to prophesy. And Samuel proph or Saul prophesied. Um, skip down to chapter 10 and verse 9. He turned his back to leave Samuel. God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So his character was so ungodly that when this spirit of prophecy, this temporary new heart that God gave him, overcame him, and he prophesied according to the word of Samuel, everybody in his life who knew him, and what in the world is wrong with him? He was so ungodly that having any godly action was seen as strange. This is the man they chose for king. It had nothing whatsoever to do with his character. It had nothing whatsoever to do with him loving the Lord. It had everything to do with how he looked. And in the end, he was chosen for much the same reason that the judges were chosen. The judges were chosen for their physical might for the most part. They were chosen for their ability to deliver the people. And at this point, Israel is being beset by the people of Philistine. And he was chosen to deliver them. He was chosen because they thought, well, this is a great big guy. He's strong. He should be mighty. He'll be able to help us out. So I want to talk with you about this idea of kings and princes and what they are. Um, so let's skip back to when God is speaking to Samuel about Saul. Back in chapter 9, starting at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. That's an interesting statement. And that's actually one of the two verses that kind of sparked this whole thing. 
And, and it's the idea that when God first announced Saul to Samuel, he didn't say, you're going to anoint him king. He said you're going to anoint him prince. Now, in the Hebrew, this is the word nagid. And it means a leader or a commander. And literally, it means the man who is in front. What did Israel ask for? Well, for Samuel 8, 20, that we may be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Israel asked for a man in front. And God said, Samuel, I'm going to have you anoint a man to be the man in front. This is, this is important for us to recognize because throughout all of Saul's life as king, until the day that God actually ripped the kingdom away from him, God never <laughs> refers to him as king. He refers to him as Nagid, this, this prince, this leader, this commander. And when he rips away the kingdom, he says, you're no longer going to be king. That's the first time God speaks about him as being the king of his people. But God had promised a king. If we back up to 1 Samuel chapter 2, when Samuel was first being dropped off at the temple to serve the Lord, his mother Hannah prayed something, and it was a prophetic prayer. And I want to just read from chapter 2, starting at verse 8, speaking about the Lord. It says, He raises up the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and to exalt the horn of his anointed. Now ultimately we do understand that this prophecy spoke of Christ, but it also speaks of David. God promised a king. And he promised even before there was a king on the horizon that Israel would have a king. And that this king would be the progenitor of Messiah. This king would be the one who came first and who set the pace by which Messiah would come. And that man was not Saul, that man was David. And in the end, though Saul was chosen to be the man in front, David was chosen to be the king. Now I mentioned earlier that Jonathan, Saul's son, would have made a good king. I like Jonathan. He's one of the tragic characters of the Old Testament. He, he loved David. He was faithful. He was a godly man. He inspired men to be leaders. He inspired men to, to go behind him in battle and to support him. And they loved him. His, his soldiers loved him. We have an account in, in 1 Samuel 14 where, Sam, where Jonathan and his armor bearer go against an entire garrison of the Philistines. And he tells the armor bearer, come with me and follow after. And the armor bearer tells him, you have my heart and soul. I'll go with you anywhere. And it's just this really beautiful picture. And it, it struck me that God gave to Jonathan what Jonathan would become to David. He gave to Jonathan a friend. He gave to Jonathan a companion who he could lean upon. And in the midst of our lives as followers of Christ, beloved, you need those people. You need somebody in your life that's going to come alongside you and stand with you. I, I really enjoyed spending time with the Osbournes. I stayed at their house a couple of nights and I had some really excellent conversations. And one of the things that really struck me is how blessed you are to have an elder like Grady. 
to, to have somebody who loves you and is taking care of you and making sure that you guys are well provided for, making sure that you guys are being guarded and other elders to come alongside. And beloved, and a, a well-functioning body of elders is a blessing beyond all worth. You cannot believe what a difference it makes in a church. And so I would say to you, not only do you want to support your pastor, but you want to support your elders. And you want to come alongside them, and you want to pay attention to the things that they're giving you because the leadership that they are providing is spot on for Scripture. And you want to make sure that what you're doing as a church is in alignment with Scripture, and your elders have been chosen because they are men who seek after God. And that, that is a great and a, and a powerful blessing. We all need people in our lives who will come alongside us, who will stand beside us, who will correct us when we err, who will support us when we're on the front, and who will make certain that no matter what happens, the very least that could be said is we won't die alone. <laughs> and there's something to be said for that. There really is something to be said for knowing that no matter what the world is doing against you, and no matter how hard things may be, there's somebody who's with you. Now the scripture tells us that we all have a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and it's speaking of Christ. But God is gracious to us to give us brothers and sisters who are the body of Christ, and in that body of Christ, he, he will bind us together, heart and soul, with, with some people who are closer. And that is a blessing, and that is a treasure. That is a treasure beyond all worth. And I just want to encourage you, if you have not found that person in your life, Perhaps the thing to do is to be that person in somebody else's life. Amen? See, the relationships that we forge as a church are the relationships that will sustain us. You've heard it said you can't pick your family. So the blood that you're born with is just the blood that you're born with. But the people of God who you choose to associate with and the way that God knits us together is a really powerful and beautiful thing. And you do have some ability to choose your dearest and closest. Now, occasionally, God will just bind you to somebody and you never saw it coming. And that's okay, too. Because he knows what you need. I don't think that Jonathan, when he was a young man and a young prince, thought to himself, hmm, I'm going to be best friends with the man who's going to replace my father. I can't imagine that being his life's goal. But when he saw the shape of the land and he saw the man that his father had become, Jonathan was completely, perfectly willing to be that man. He pledged himself to David. And he pledged himself to David knowing that he was going to take his father's throne. He understood that no matter what happened, God was going to be honored. And he didn't really care that from a human perspective, that throne should be his. Because that's the way it works with kings. The king dies, his son becomes king. Jonathan understood that he would never be king because David was the rightful king. And it didn't bother him. See, sometimes we get too conflicted with our own expectations of grandeur. Sometimes we get too conflicted with our own desire to be exalted, our own desire to be recognized. We want somebody to say good things about us. We want somebody to say, oh, he's so wonderful. If I may be blunt, get over it. We are more than that. We don't need the affirmation of people because we have the confirmation of God. We have his name written upon us and we have his son dwelling within us by the power of his spirit. 
We don't need the world to say good things about us. We just need to follow after Christ. And if we will do that, then in the end, all of the exaltation that you could ever possibly want, you will receive in the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And it will pay for everything. I promise you. So Jonathan was a man that God put into David's life in spite of the fact that he should have been king after his father Saul. The dynamic here is, is really remarkable. So if, if God spoke of Saul as a leader, how did he speak of David? Well, look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, Saul has just had the kingdom of God ripped away from him. He's had his classic encounter with, uh, with Samuel. And um, verse 1 of chapter 16 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. That's how God speaks of David. A king. Now, this word is Melech, and it's exactly what it says. It is a king. And this was pronounced by God in regards to David, and he has provided for himself a king. And in the end, we think about, excuse me, <coughs> We think about all the things that we, we know happened in between David being anointed as king and David finally ascending the throne. And I gave you just a really brief list. I mean, I, I, I spent some time just cutting out and honing and cramming things in because there's just so much to say. Do you think that any of those things were unnecessary? Is God God? If God is God, and God is sovereign, then every single thing that happened in David's life was designed by God for a purpose known by God. God was preparing his king for the time when his king would reign. And it took over 20 years for David's apprenticeship as king to be served. It was a strange apprenticeship. It involved combat as a youth with a giant, it involved being taken into the king's household and having the king promptly attempt to murder you. Um, it involved marrying the king's daughter. It involved leading men in battle. And ultimately, it involved him fleeing the temple, being let out of his window, his wife lying on his account and saying that David threatened her life if he didn't let her go, not because she hated David, but because she was scared to death of her father. David had a strange apprenticeship as king. Everything that happened, you could sit back and look at it from a human perspective and say, that makes no sense at all. And you might be looking at things in your life right now and thinking to yourself, what this circumstance is that I'm in makes no sense at all. God, God must be on vacation or he must be out of control or, or maybe the sovereignty thing isn't really everything it's all cracked up to be. Maybe the people who say that, that God and Satan are in battle all the time and, and the outcome is uncertain, maybe they're right. And maybe right now is Satan's ascendancy because, I mean, after all, all this bad stuff's going on all over the world. 
But what the scripture attests and affirms to us is that God is God. And that everything that happens, happens according to his perfect will. Ephesians 1 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That everything that has been and will ever be has been ordained since before the foundations of the world. This is our God, and he is greater than anything we can imagine. So if David went through all of this for the purpose of training, is it not conceivable that the things that you're facing right now that you wish you weren't are by the hand of God for purposes that you may not yet see? And if that's true, then what is your responsibility in regards to those things? To submit quietly to the hand of your God. To do the good that's in front of you right now. To fight the good fight and to be faithful to the things that you know. And to obey God regardless of what the consequences look like. To say, Lord, I will do what you say. I will obey your commands. And I will walk in your truth all the days of my life. And it may cost me my life, but that's okay. Because in the end, we start to parse out our life by looking at things and saying, well... I'll go this far, but no further. I'll, I'll pay that price, but not that. I'll, I'll obey this command, but not this one, because the cost is just a little too high. I've worked all my life to have the things that I have, and I'll be doggone if I'm going to let some fool come take them from me. Well, what does God tell us we're supposed to do? That's the only question that actually matters. And as followers of Christ... We have to be very careful to set our lives in alignment to the Word of God and not to anything else. And we have to trust that the things that we don't understand are intended by our God for our good, for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. Almost everybody can quote to me Romans 8.28 and tell us that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, but very few people understand what comes next. Romans 8, 29 and 30 tell us that he has done all of this for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. So whatever it is that God is bringing into your life right now is happening to shape you into the likeness and image of his son, Jesus Christ. And he will not fail at that task. He will absolutely accomplish the purpose which he is working in you. And there's hope in that. Because I, I know the reality of my own sin. I know the reality of the blackness of my own heart. And I recognize the things in me that are absolutely contrary to Christ. And I have hope that God is working on fixing them. And sometimes that fix is really painful. Sometimes that fix feels like it might be worse than the disease that it's set out to fix. But it's not. And all these things that David endured, what's remarkable is that throughout all of the time that David was fleeing for his life and, and hunted in the wilderness and all of the time that he spent, two decades, we never find David wailing and bemoaning and complaining his lot. But, you know, Saul doesn't get his dinner on time and he's ready to kill somebody. We're called to walk in faithfulness regardless of what the circumstances of our life look like. Because God prepared a king just as he prepares us. So, even rebel kings seek God once in a while. 
Is that a true statement? I hope so. I just said it. <laughs> Even rebel kings seek after God, at least in their own fashion, once in a while. I mentioned the first time we see Saul um, engaged in any sort of a religious act, and it was that prophecy when God gave him a new spirit. So we can kind of set that one aside because I don't think that Paul was necessarily, or Saul, excuse me, <laughs> was necessarily volitionally um, engaged in that action. God gave him a new heart. It came over him. He prophesied. And it was in a response to what had been done. So the first real religious act that we find anything about Saul doing is an act of presumption. So look at 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13 starting in verse 8. They've gone in, they've fought the Philistines, they've captured a city. Um, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Samuel does not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered a micmash, I, I said, the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul engaged in this act of presumption. And because he was enough Israelite to know how things were supposed to look. He dressed it up in, in all kinds of language that justified what he did in his mind. Beloved, you need to be on your guard. And you need to be aware that the pagan kings around us know the Christianese language enough to dress up their evil actions in good-sounding words. And you need to be conscious of the fact that they might not even really be completely aware of what they're doing. They might seem incredibly sincere. They might seem incredibly devoted to their false ideas of God. And we need to be willing and able to judge the actions of the rulers of our land according to the word of God and not according to anything else. We need to stand with what God has said and weigh those actions according to his truth. Because even pagan kings, even wicked kings, will seek after God when the time is right. How many times did we hear leaders who have never taken the name of God in their lips apart from cursing, say, God bless America, at the end of a speech. Well, why do they say it? Is it because they actually want God to bless America, or is it because they know we want to hear it? You be the judge. You, you weigh that out in accordance to what we see of their lives and policies. And you be the judge. What Scripture tells us is that somebody's outward religious activities is not enough to vindicate a changed heart. Something else has to happen. There has to be a genuine love for God, which cannot be hidden. Life's change. 
when, when God changes us, He changes us. And while we still struggle against sin, at least we are struggling against sin. <laughs> Amen? But though we still fall down, at least we're in the fight. <clears throat> and the reality is, is that it's far too easy for people to utter religious platitudes and by doing so, convince other people that they are good and godly people. Beloved, we need to be more awake than that. We need to be very careful and we need to be very attentive to what's going on in the world around us and not allow foolishness to blind us. So Saul's first religious act was an act of presumption. His next religious act was an act of dogged idiocy. <laughs> it was a rash vow with a very foolish declaration. Skip over to chapter 14. Chapter 14, uh, starting at verse 24, Saul says this. The men of Israel had been pressed that day, and Saul laid an oath upon the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. So what was happening was this. Israel had been hard-pressed, and Saul was worried that his armies were going to take a lunch break. So he said, anybody who, who stops fighting to go eat, may he be cursed of the Lord. This was at the same time that Jonathan was capturing the garrison of the Philistines. And Jonathan was returning back to his father's armies. And as he came, he found some honey on the ground, just dripping out of the trees. A beehive had burst open, apparently. And he just touched his staff to the bottom of the, of the honey, and he lifted it to his lips, and immediately he's like, oh, I needed that so much. I was so hungry. And so he went back to his father, and in the time passing this, Saul and his armies had um, been engaged with, with the Philistines and, and some skirmishes going on. They had captured some livestock, and the people were driven so mad by hunger that the scripture tells us that they they killed the animals and ate it with the blood. Now, read between the lines and understand what this means is they didn't take the time to even cook it. They, they were just eating it raw because they were starving. They, they had been fighting all day long and Saul was foolish. And he had the opportunity to back up from his rash vow. But instead of doing that, he blamed the people. And then he commanded, he saw what they were doing, and he commanded a, a, a stone to be brought. And the scripture tells us this was the first time that Saul built an altar to the Lord. Now, your people have just been engaged in a violation of the law, consuming raw meat, engaged in these terrible things. What would you expect a godly king to do? He's going to build an altar. He's going to cry out for mercy and repentance. He's going to have the priests offer sacrifice and say, God, forgive us. Is that why Saul built an altar? No, Saul built an altar so that he could inquire of the Lord and say, Lord, do we go on down and fight them some more? And God would, didn't answer. Strange, huh? <laughs> he, he's not just going to let you continue on with what you're doing when you're acting in rebellion. And you might find that there's going to be points in your life where you know the sin that you're committing. And you're seeking God's favor and you're seeking God's wisdom and you're seeking God's guidance for the next thing but you haven't dealt with the current thing. You hear me? You need to deal with what's on your plate. You need to deal with the sin that you're stuck with, and you need to ask God for mercy and resolve that in Christ so that you can then move forward. Because you will live in the absence of God's abundant blessing 
if you are not living a life of repentance. So deal with the sin that is in front of you. Did Saul know this was sinful? Absolutely he knew it. He speaks the truth in Scripture about it. He, he says, oh, I can't believe these people are doing this. This is terrible. Okay, God, do we go on? <laughs> what? So, as if that's not quite bad enough, he was determined that his initial vow would be upheld. So, Saul inquires of the Lord, do we go? God doesn't answer because they haven't dealt with their sin. But Saul interprets that, somebody ate something. Somebody violated my vow. And he commands that the Urim and the Thurman be cast. And he makes these tremendously rash statements. And he says, somebody will die for this even if it's my own son. Hmm. Remember what Jonathan did? The honey? It's going to come back to haunt him. Or at least to haunt Saul. So, he made this vow. The Uman and the Thuman were cast. And Saul and Jonathan were taken. So the people were released from guilt. None of them did anything. Cast again. Jonathan is, is taken by the lot. And what we find is uh, Saul is, is really rather angry. And so in verse 43 of chapter 14, we find this. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan said to him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Now, before I go on, let me ask you a question. Did this vow have anything to do with honoring God? Did it have anything to do with God's command? Did it have anything to do with anything that even makes sense? No. This, this was a foolish king who acted rashly all the days of his life. And he was determined to have his own way, regardless of what it cost anybody. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Now that's an interesting word, ransomed. It implies a price was paid, but the scripture doesn't tell us that a price was paid. I think that in the writing, there's something else that's kind of being covered up for the sake of graciousness. Basically what happened was the people told Saul, no, absolutely not. If you kill him, we're done. You, you won't have an army. You won't have a nation. You might have a crown that you can keep for a day or two. But you have nothing. And the people purchased Samuel or purchased Jonathan's life by their refusal to obey Saul's foolishness. Now knowing what you know of Saul right now, how do you think that sat with him? I don't think he necessarily wanted to kill his son. But I do think that he very necessarily wanted to have his own way. This was Saul, after all. He was determined to have his own way, no matter what happened. You ever been in that place? You ever been in that place where you know what you're pushing for is just wrong? But you're going to keep pushing for it because it's what I want. 
I want to tell you very plainly, God's mercy extends even to that foolishness. And sometimes his mercy extends by denying your petulant wants. You can cry out against him. You can fret. You can curse the heavens. And God is still gracious enough to deny you something that you don't need to have. There are those who will tell you that if, if you are good and righteous and obedient and faithful, that you can have anything you want. But you need to understand that that teaching is a lie. God will withhold things from us that we do not need to have. And he will withhold things from us that will harm us or harm others according to his grace and mercy, according to his perfect plan, according to his will, and according to his purpose. Sometimes he'll let us have those things and let us pay the consequences. There, there are more ruinously painful times in my life than I ever want to remember, let alone disclose. Times when God indeed let me have the thing that I knew I had to have. So when you find yourself in that place where the will of God is very clearly saying no, and you still want it, I would encourage you with all that I have in me to just take a half a step back and thank God for refusing to let you have that thing. And recognize that in that refusal, it is an act of mercy and an act of grace. God does nothing because he's angry or hates us or, or is determined to hurt us. God does all that he does according to the counsel of his will, which he established in Christ before the foundations of the universe. He does all that he does in order to fashion glory in us that we might bring glory to Christ. That motive is his supreme motive in all that he does, that love that he bears towards us because he wants to. And for us to step away from anything that God does and, and couch it in terms of saying, I didn't get it, God must hate me, is just foolish in the extreme. So what we find is that Saul's religious activities, they're, they're fairly twisted up. His next religious act was a rebellious farce. He disobeyed in regards to Amalek. You know the story. They were told to go in and take the city. They took the city. They were told to destroy everything. But instead, he allowed the people to have the choicest of the animals, and they brought the king of Amalek, Agag, back as, as a trophy instead of putting him to death. And um, when Samuel arrived, he heard the animals lowing, and he said, what is this that I hear? Or he started off, and he said, hey, Saul, what's up? And Saul said, we did everything we were supposed to do. <laughs> Yay, us! And, and Samuel said, um... Why, why, why do I hear oxen lowing over the hill? Um, it was the people. They, they, they made me let them have the animals. And, and, and we were going to bring them back and sacrifice them. Yeah, yeah, that's it. We, we were going to sacrifice them. And Samuel looked at Saul. And he uttered these words. Chapter 15. As the Lord has great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, verse 22, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination 
and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God also has rejected you from being king. So Saul immediately sort of falls down on his face and he cries for mercy. I've sinned, I've sinned. Please forgive me. And Samuel turns to leave and Saul lays hold of his cloak and rips a portion of it away and God says, in the same fashion has God ripped away from you the kingdom. And the scripture tells us that Samuel never saw Saul again all the days of his life. And the story kind of shifts from Saul to David. But at that shifting, I want you to notice something really interesting. Samuel, who's been through all of this, who saw the choosing of Saul and understood at least something of the reasons, do you think that he kind of understood, maybe we need to do it differently next time? I would hope so. But even the best of us sometimes mess up. Chapter 16, look at chapter 16, verse 6. He's gone to Jesse, and Jesse's sons are coming out, and verse 6 says, When they came, he looked on Eliab, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look upon his appearance or on the height of his stature. Remember why Saul was chosen? Head and shoulders, right? Head and shoulders above. Eliab, why was, he, why was Saul or Samuel so excited about Eliab? He's a big, good-looking guy. Oops. <laughs> don't, don't look on his outward appearance because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. Do not judge by outward appearances. Judge by what's going on. You see, God sees all that we are, and he is not deceived by our pretensions, even the pretensions with which we deceive ourselves. I don't know about you, but as I'm aging, I find that sometimes my mental picture of my physical ability is no longer correctly aligned with my reality. Because the things that I used to be able to do when I was younger, I still know how to do them. But getting them done is a whole lot costlier than it used to be. I, I, I trick myself. I deceive myself. And, and that's probably the most mundane of my self-deceptions. Because honestly, beloved, we can all deceive ourselves in regards to sin. We can deceive ourselves in regards to righteousness, in regards to obedience. We can deceive ourselves in regards to the things that we're doing, the things that we're allowing, the boundaries that we set in our lives, and the boundaries that we refuse to adhere to. We can deceive ourselves in ways that will harm us tremendously. But God himself is never fooled by our deceptions because he sees the heart. And he goes further than that, and he tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? So you don't even know why you do what you do most of the times that you do it. You don't understand the workings of your own heart. You don't understand the things that motivate you. All you know is you want what you want. God understands why. Verse 10 goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So God brings David on the scene, and, and the, the scripture describes David as ruddy and handsome, a, a small lad, um, I've read anything from David being 13 to 19 at the time of his anointing. 
Probably somewhere in the middle is a fair guess. But, but David is anointed as king, and he bursts onto the scene by killing Goliath. You guys know the story. Shepherd boy, five smooth stones, stone in the head, uses the giant's own sword, cuts it off. Excellent. Great story. There's, there's consequences for that great story. Can you imagine the, the reverberations? That's the word. I can't find the word. Can you imagine how that echoed through all of the kingdom? Here's this kid. And he goes up against this giant that had been defying the armies of Israel, been defying the king. What, what did Goliath really want? Saul, your head and shoulders above every man in your kingdom. You just come on out here and we'll settle this. Mano a mano. To the victor go the spoils. If you kill me, Philistines leave everything to you. But when I smash you and grind you to powder underneath my boots, we own you. And do you know why Saul had not gone out and fought Goliath? Because like every man in his camp, he was in his tent shaking in his boots, just trembling. He was terrified. He knew he couldn't take this man. You know what's interesting though? David also knew he couldn't take him. But he knew God would. David didn't rely on himself. When he came up against Goliath, he said some of the most stirring words of Scripture. You come against me with spear and sword, but I come against you in the name of the living God. Prepare to die. Good words. And he said those words in the hearing of Israel. And for just a season, they remembered who they were. And they began to sing songs about David. David has slain his ten thousands. What about Saul? Oh, he, he slew a thousand. <laughs> Do you think that went well with Saul, this king who loves himself above all things? You see, even the blessing of God in giving to David this great victory was a hardship that came upon his life. Could God have shielded him from it? Sure. Could God have found some other way to slay Goliath? Absolutely. Could God have done what he did in some other way so that David didn't have to endure that? Without question. But remember, God was preparing his king. So David's learning. He's learning how faithful God is. He's learning that no matter what comes against him, be it giant or people or king or whatever, God is faithful. Beloved, those lessons are the same lessons that God is teaching us. They're the same lessons that God is teaching us every day that we live and everything that we do. And David now is honored by the people, and the reaction that the scripture tells us Saul had, it says that he stood in fearful awe of David when he saw that David had the Spirit of the Lord with him. Just think about that for a minute. Fearful awe of this kid. <coughs> Pardon me. Where's that water you promised me? Thank you. <laughs> Fearful awe of this kid that he had brought into his home to play the guitar for him. That's really why David came in. I didn't mention it, but, but David was brought into the, into the house of Saul because somebody heard he was a pretty good picker. And Saul had this tormented spirit that was being assailed by, by 
evil spirits sent by the Lord to do that, to torment him, to harass him. And somebody had the bright idea, you know, music calms the savage beast. Bring in this picker. And David played the lyre for him. And the spirits went away. So here's this kid who really had nothing for him except that he had a guitar and knew how to play it. And all of a sudden, the people are singing songs about him because he did what Saul was supposed to do and couldn't be bothered or couldn't find it in himself to do it. And Saul looked at him with fearful awe. He was scared of him. Now, if we know anything about Saul by this point, we know that when Saul gets scared, he's a dangerous man. So the scripture tells us that Saul had a spear in his hand one day while David's playing. He's just there picking and a grin, and here comes his spear. Poof, right into the wall. Twice Saul did that to him. David's a little on edge, and understandably so. And yet, he sticks around. Saul decides, well, I can't kill him. He's too quick. Maybe the Philistines can. David, I have a job for you. I'm going to give you command over a thousand. I want you to go out and I want you to harass the Philistines and win might for me. He's thinking to himself, this kid doesn't know anything about leading men into battle. Goliath, that was a fluke. I got him now. And David was victorious time and time and time again. And Saul began to recognize that he was fighting against God and not against David. And that scared him even more. And so he began to act even more crazily. He began to try and charge his servants. Okay, I want you to bring him to me so that I can slaughter him. And he told his son, I want you to make sure that David is brought to me so we can kill him. And Jonathan refused. Jonathan loved David. And Jonathan understood that his Saul was no fit king and that David had been chosen by God to replace the king. And at one point after Jonathan um, refused to do this, it was, it was after Saul had tried to kill David and, and Michael had helped David to escape. That was David's wife. Had, had helped him to escape and uh, lied to her father about David's involvement and, and what had gone on. And um, so Jonathan came back to Saul and he was pleading with Saul to, to stop this pursuit of, of David. And he said David had gone back to worship with his family and um, that, he was, that he was to be allowed to, to worship as he was supposed to. Look at um, 1 Samuel chapter 20. And I want you to hear the, the words of Saul to his own son. First Samuel chapter 20, starting at verse 30, it says, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Now those are true words. You understand that? that? That last bit, that was a true statement. As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, Jonathan, you're never going to be king. Was that a surprise to Jonathan? He knew it. Did he care? Nope. So, so Saul is just incensed. And Jonathan stands there looking at him. And um, he goes on and he says, Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? 
But Saul hurled his spear at him. Just as an aside, you'd think by now that they'd figure out if they're going to anger Saul, they should hide the spear. Jonathan stood for what was true. And Saul was so incensed by it that not only did he berate his son and, and curse him, but he then tried to kill him. The irony is that Saul tried to kill the son that he was angry who wasn't going to sit on the throne. It doesn't quite fit. And sometimes the situations that we find ourselves in, we're going to end up arguing both sides of the same thing because we don't really pause to consider that God has given us something completely different to do or to say, <coughs> to think, or to be. And we'll get ourselves worked into corners and backed into places where we really have nothing to do except argue ourselves in circles. And we'll find that the things that we're doing to try and accomplish our will are the very things that become our undoing. I don't know how to express this strongly enough for all of us, but God always knows what's best. And we are best served when we trust him. So at this point, Jonathan realizes that Saul is determined to kill David. And this is the famous scene where they go out with the arrows and they shoot the arrows out and they say, go out or come in and that way we'll know what's going on. And David and Jonathan have their goodbyes and David finally departs for the wilderness and is gone for a long time. Hunted by Saul, chased down and harassed. And um, David has many, many adventures. He flees to Nob where he is fed by the priests and he is given the sword of Goliath because he's fled so quickly from, from his home he didn't take a sword. So he's given the sword of Goliath and Saul learns of this. He goes to Nob, he slaughters the 85 priests who were living there. Um, one priest escapes and then he also turns the edge of the sword against the entire town. He slaughters men, women, children, and livestock. Now, what was the action that finally cost Saul the kingdom? He wouldn't kill one pagan king. But he'll happily put to death 85 priests of God and all of their families when he can't have his way. Beloved, make no mistake. The wicked men among us and around us, the wicked men among whom we live, they, they are restrained by the mercy of God. Do not for one minute ever believe that they are restrained because of some innate goodness in them. Do not ever for one moment believe that the thing that protects you or allows you to engage in relationships with people is some sort of inherent goodness of man. Now, I'm not telling you to, to be ugly or cruel or aloof. We're supposed to carry the gospel. We're supposed to be very clearly intentional about sharing Christ with the world. But the scripture is also very plain that we are supposed to guard our hearts and guard our minds from an involvement with them which is too close. And we need to, to guard our relationships. And we need to do this because the only thing that restrains them from the madness that we see in Saul is the mercy of God. It is the truth that the people of the world are very different from the people of God. And, and they are not 
the people that you are to invest your time and relationships in as if you can get something from them that you need. The relationships that will sustain you are relationships within the body of Christ. Scripture tells us very plainly in many places, but perhaps nowhere clearer than 1 Corinthians when it says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. My mama told it to me like this when I was just a kid. You lie down with fleas. Dogs, you get up with fleas. Right? I said it backwards and I ruined it, but that's okay. You lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. And we see in Saul this, this determination to have his way regardless of anything else that's going on. And we see that in the end, there's really no limits to the evil that he will perpetrate. There's one more thing about Saul that we need to understand. In the end, Samuel dies and Saul is distraught. All of his life, he kind of leaned on Samuel. He kind of leaned on the idea of Samuel. Samuel was sort of his mentor, though he didn't listen to anything that Samuel said. But he still valued Samuel. And when Samuel died, Saul realized, I have absolutely nobody who will go to the Lord on my account. And the Philistines were massing to invade Israel, and Saul was terrified, and he sought the Lord. So look with me um, at 1 Samuel 28. Starting at verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land, and the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shinnom. Then Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, for his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul sought to find answers from God, and God refused to answer because Saul was no longer his king. And Saul decides that the right thing to do is to consult with Samuel. But Samuel is dead. So the only thing he can do is find a witch, a medium, a necromancer, somebody who can raise the shade of Samuel. I'm not going to get into whether it was actually Samuel or whether it was a demon impersonating Samuel. Not the gist. The gist is Samuel was raised and Saul consulted him and immediately Samuel picked up where he left off. What are you doing, you fool? What are you doing? And he pronounced the judgment upon him. And said to Saul, you're going to die today. Before the sun goes down, you and all of your sons will be where I am. God has rejected you, Saul. And he rejected you a long time ago. And you have done nothing but add sin to sin and make it worse and worse. And you are finished. And I cannot imagine how that felt. So much so that Saul was literally unmanned. <laughs> he couldn't even get up. He's lay there on the floor, a quivering mass. And the witch had food brought to him, prepared it, fed him, 
And when he had the strength to sit up, she said, please go away. I can't believe you had me raise Samuel. I, 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 what have you done to me? Go. And the scripture tells us that Saul went into battle and he was slain by a random archer. And, and the arrow had pierced him. He knew he was going to die. And he said to his armor bearer, kill me. I don't want them to make fun of me. <laughs> Again, what's his objective? Me. And when the armor bearer would not, Saul fell upon his own sword and died. And the epitaph that we find in First Chronicles. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord, and he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord, and therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. But we just read that Saul sought the Lord. He inquired of the Lord, and the Lord didn't answer him. So what is it that First Chronicles is telling us? Is it telling us that in the end he went to the medium instead of talking to God? No. He tried to talk to God first, but God had already rejected him, and God had already told him, I'm not talking to you ever again. We're done. So what is it that this is telling us? It's telling us that Saul spent a lifetime not seeking God. He spent every day of his life doing everything in his power to turn away from God one step at a time, one piece at a time, one inch at a time. And beloved, the truth is this. That's the way it happens in our lives. It's the small decisions that you think don't matter. It's the little things piling up one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. Until in the end, you have built up so much callous on your life that you no longer even care to try and pursue God. Oh, you may still try to look good in the eyes of the world. But we are commanded to keep incredibly short books with God. And I would say to you that wherever you find yourself right now, whatever it is that's going on in your life, at whatever point the pressure is coming and God is speaking to you and saying, hear me, you are obligated as a follower of Christ to lay down your arms of rebellion and submit to your God. You never have the option to rebel and continue to rebel without consequence. Because God is determined to fashion Christ in his children. This is why the writer of Hebrews tells us that he disciplines those that he receives as sons and chastises those that he accepts. Always. If you're able to walk around and live a life of sin with no consequence in your mind, in your soul, in your life whatsoever, you need to be terrified. Because there is not a Christian on the face of the planet who can do that. It means there is something desperately, dreadfully wrong with your soul. Beloved, wherever you're at, and whatever that's going on, you need to live a life of constant repentance. Seeking the face of God, keeping short books, laying these things down. Because this epitaph for Saul was not a single statement about the last days of his life. It was a cumulative statement about everything that he did and the way that he lived day after day after day after day. But I think it's only fitting that we don't end there. That's kind of a depressing place to end a sermon. Do you know David also had an epitaph? 
Interestingly enough, we don't find it really in the Old Testament. I find the best epitaph of David in the New. Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Speaking of Saul, we find when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now there's an epitaph I'd like to have for myself. <laughs> a man after God's own heart, who will do all his will. And beloved, the truth is this. What the church needs today is for every single follower of Christ to set themselves to that highest of standards, to do everything that God commands, without exception, without excuse, without reservation, and always without regret. For God knows those who are his and will repay. Will you pray with me? Father, I ask that you give to us the grace of your spirit and that you would speak to us, God, through these things. I ask that in the midst of everything that has been heard, that your truth be planted in us. God, I pray that if there's anything I've said that's amiss, that you would strip it away. But anchor your truth in our lives and cause it to bear fruit. I pray, God, that this church, this, this wonderful light in the, in the middle of darkness, would grow and would flourish, that you would care for Brother Kyle and his family, the elders, God, that you would minister and lavish your grace upon them. And I pray, God, that over all that we do, that we are bound together in Christ, that the name of Jesus is expressed and exalted, that the King would be worshipped by hearts where he is now and despised, and that the Lamb who was slain would receive the full reward of his suffering. For it's in the name of Christ that we pray.